Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Nature is so fascinating, so incredibly complex. It doesn't need us for anything. We desperately need nature. And let's not forget this. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Dr. Heidi Silvestre. Heidi is a glaciologist and science advocate. She invests a lot of her time in science policy and science outreach, believing that scientists and researchers have the duty to communicate about their work and tell the world about the wonders of the cryosphere and the threats targeting it. I met Heidi on an expedition to Greenland this summer on the National Geographic expedition with Alex Honnold. Heidi and I became close friends quickly and her passion and enthusiasm for her subject matter was obvious from the first second. She's an incredibly talented expedition field scientist and is at the cutting edge of glacier and climate science. I managed to sit down with her at the Royal Geographical Society the night after we'd shared the stage on a panel discussing the future of exploration. It was a long overdue recording and I'm really glad we got to do it in person. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I found this one immensely hopeful and inspiring. Over to Dr. Heidi Silvestre. So, we are at the RGS, the Royal Geographical Society, in foggy London town. Um, and I've managed to find you to do a podcast. After, <laughs> Finally. Yeah, we tried to do it in Greenland and didn't get around to it, and then it's much nicer to do it in person. And last night we did the panel on what is there left to explore uh, to open the Explore Weekend, and it turns out there's a lot left to explore, um, and we really need to explore it. But we're not, well, we might talk about that today, I guess. Maybe we should. Important topic. Important I agree. topic. Yeah. Um, but I think the best place to start is with you. <laughs> so it would be nice for you to introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. It's really great to see you again. And uh, yes, yeah, so my name is Heidi Silvestre. Um, I come from France and um, I'm a glaciologist. Um, so what I get to do these days is to try and better understand what's happening to all the icy and snowy places of the world, make sure how we understand how they react to climate change and, and most importantly, I think, make the science more accessible and more understandable. And how did you become a glaciologist? You know, I have no excuse really because I was born in the French Alps in the lovely town of Annecy. And I grew up in a, in a very small village nearby, and I was just spending all my time in the mountains. I mean, my village is just on the foothills of Le Semnoz, which is not a very tall mountain, 1,700 meters. But that's all I cared about, is to be outside in nature. I mean, I remember when I was even a super young kid, waking up at, you know, sunrise and trying to go to the forest and find some animals, find some wildlife. And I just loved having the nature all to myself. And as I was growing up, I thought, yeah, what kind of job can I do to be outside all day long, every day? And I joined this tiny climbing, mountaineering club, Les Randonneurs du Chéron. And, you know, it was a bunch of volunteers just taking kids out in the mountains. And, um, and this really opened my eyes to a completely different world, you know, the high altitude environments. And in the Alps, you know, you're never too far away from, from glaciers, from these beautiful mountains. And, um, and it was during a trip from Chamonix to Zermatt, La Haute Route, 
um, that I met a mountain guide from Verbier in Switzerland, and and I was 16 or 17 at the time, and he's the one who said that there are these people, these scientists called glaciologists, who get paid to study ice. And I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to become a glaciologist. And, um, and luckily, I've managed to do that. But there must have been other like triggers and access points because, you know, as somebody who went, oh, how can I spend my life in the mountains? I didn't go down the route of academia. You know, you, I don't know, were you pushed towards that by him or was it that you understood the fragility of the planet or something else? What was it that led you to academia and glaciology? Yeah, I think at the time it was absolutely not the fragility of the planet. It was absolutely not for environmental concerns. But I wasn't too bad at school and I know I wasn't good at anything else. <laughs> to be honest, I wasn't a very good skier. I wasn't at all a good climber, um, although I really enjoyed, you know, doing some mountaineering. Um, and so for me, trying to use kind of the skills that I had at the time, I thought that perhaps I could go down the academic route. But, you know, no one in my family uh, was part of academia. I didn't know any scientists. So I had no idea what it was actually to become a glaciologist. But the only thing I understood was that, yeah, I would get to travel uh, to these remote and, and fantastic places. And that's all I cared about. <laughs> that's all I wanted to do. So how does one become a glaciologist and how did you? Well, there are many different um, ways to become a glaciologist. My, my journey into glaciology was through um, academia and geography. Uh, so I was very lucky um, during my undergrad in geography to spend a semester in Svalbard, which was unbelievable. I mean, for someone like me who came from that tiny village in the French Alps, this blew my mind and it was part of the Erasmus um, exchange semester. And I thought, yes, I mean, I'm convinced this is what I want to do. I want to keep traveling to these uh, crazy places. And, and then I took a master's degree in glaciology at the University of Aberystwyth, <laughs> which might sound a bit strange. Um, but I met uh, this incredible team from Aberystwyth in Svalbard, who told me that the university was so great and to be fair, at the time, they had the very best glaciologists in the world. And they still, I mean, some of them are still there, luckily. Um, so after the master's degree, I took a year off to gain more experience in the field. And to me, I really wanted to become a field glaciologist. You know, this is all I cared about. You can become a glaciologist, you know, staying at the office, working on your computer. But I just wanted to have this contact with the field. So luckily, they invited me to join a trip to uh, Nepal um, to study what's happening there, and then a trip to Greenland, which was my very first big um, polar expedition. And then that led me to, to do a PhD in Svalbard, so back on my favorite island, um, for four years. And eventually, I managed to become a glaciologist. So yeah, this is what happened. And what were those early trips like? <laughs> those early trips were unbelievable. I had no idea what I was doing. And luckily, I had this kind of label as, oh, she's from the Alps. She knows what she's doing. <laughs> I probably didn't know much of what I was doing, to be fair. Um, but I loved it. They were very small teams, you know, um, kind of informal expeditions. We were trying to get whatever data we could get. And I love the fact that we had so much freedom to study the glaciers in Nepal or, or in Greenland. Um, and I just totally fell in love. I mean, it totally convinced me that this is what I wanted to do. They were also insanely hard. I mean, my, my first trip to Greenland, um, I genuinely thought I was going to die every morning when I was waking up. It was incredibly cold. The hardships were insane. And and it taught me so much about myself, about working as a part of a small team, that I understood that there were so many more layers, so many more dimensions to just, you know, being a field scientist. And what was it you were doing out there in Greenland? So in Greenland, um, we were on the ice sheet. Uh, so it's the largest mass of ice of the Northern Hemisphere. And we were trying to find subglacial lakes, so lakes that are under the ice sheet. And having these lakes there um, 
completely changes the behavior of the ice. So it makes the ice a little bit warmer. It's also like pretty much like having soap, you know, on the bedrock. So it's making the ice move faster um, towards the ocean. It's it's changing the way it's contributing to sea level rise. And so what we're doing for for four weeks is mostly driving snowmobiles, um, pulling a ground penetrating radar that basically helps us to measure the, the ice thickness and detect water. But we were only allowed to drive between five and 10 kilometers per hour over hundreds of kilometers in temperatures that were down to, I mean, the first week I remember was minus 45. So it, it was pretty painful and uh, you learn a lot <laughs> during these situations. I mean, the fact that you're sat here with the career you've had answers the question, but, you know, did you not want to sack it all off at this point and think this is too much? Why am I doing this? I mean, never. Um, never because, you know, when you when you start a new field and you don't know any better, you know, when I was in Greenland and suffering every day, I thought, actually, this is the way all expeditions go, probably. Um, I had no clue that in many ways the expedition was a little bit different from normal expeditions. Um, and and after that, I definitely learned to use my voice and to say it when I, I felt really unsafe and, and really uncomfortable. Um, but I, you know, I always love a good challenge. And to me, I had my eyes on the prize. You know, I really wanted to become a glaciologist. And if I had to go through really tough expeditions, you know, I just had to suck it up <laughs> and just make it work. Yeah. And how old are you now? Now I'm 34 and I was 23, I think, in Greenland, yeah. Yeah, and I just kind of want to derail and deviate here, I mean, as usual. But, um, you know, you're, we're the same age. You're 23, working in what I'm guessing is a predominantly male environment. Was that yeah. ever a problem? Was it a strength? Was, you know, what was that experience like? You know, I, I love what Felicity Aston often says. She said, oh, we're always divided dividing people in the field as, oh, the guys are very strong, physically strong, and female scientists would be more, you know, they have this emotional intelligence. But actually, I've seen, you know, I've seen it the other way around as well. We all bring our own strength. We all have weaknesses. Uh, we all have great days. We all have terrible days in the field. But it's true. I mean, when, when I started uh, my studies in glaciology, I was very often, if not every time the only female scientist as a part of the team. And I think I got very lucky to always be surrounded by the right people who always gave me just the same chances that they would give to, to guys um, becoming glaciologists. So um, it's not often the case. And it's a very small world. It's a very small community. And it's so important to make sure that you go in the field with people you would trust with your life. Because this is what happens in the field. I mean, sometimes you share a tent with someone you've never met before. Um, you go through um, crazy terrain, uh, insanely wild conditions, and you want to make sure that you can rely on the person next to you if you fall into a crevasse. And I've gone through some expeditions where, yeah, I didn't feel, I didn't feel this at all. I didn't feel safe. I felt that science, it was science first and safety maybe fourth, I don't know. <laughs> and this is when you get into, into massive troubles. But we, you know, as, um, as a woman today, I would really encourage uh, young girls to, to look into the field of glaciology because it's not just about physical strength, obviously. And, and what we desperately need today is diversity. And I'm conscious of not going too deep to all this, or maybe we should, but why do we desperately need diversity across the board, outside of gender? I think it's, um, it's about just sticking to the, the science agenda. Um, I think it's the way we do science, the way we do science, but also the way we communicate the science. Um, glaciology is a field that has been populated for quite a long time by, you know, it's almost like exploration, you know, explorers want to conquer a certain environment and, and collect the best possible data. And, and no matter the environment, no matter the local populations, you know, we just want to be the one planting a flag somewhere, collecting the data somewhere. And, and we've totally, I think, disregarded for a very long time the local impact we could have, positive or negative, uh, the work with local and indigenous communities, but also then, you know, the, the impact that 
the data can have on society. And, and there have been a few publications about this, about the, the gender inequality of climate research. Um, and let me tell you, these articles were pretty much a, a bombshell in these communities. But I think we need to talk about this, um, that there are different ways to do science, different ways to make the science useful to, to the communities. And I think that's what science should be all about today. But in order to get there, we definitely need other minds to join our fields. And, and diversity is incredibly important. It's not just a gender issue, as you said, it's just diversity in general. How were those, um, how was that research and article received by the community? <laughs> well, not very well, <laughs> to say the least. No, but I think it, it was a bit of a taboo for a very long time. Um, and, and I think it was about time, I think the papers came out maybe two or three years ago, so it's very new. Um, but I think it, it's very important that we address those issues. You know, we're, we're not perfect, <laughs> far from it, in climate research or in glaciology. Um, but we all want to be a part of the solution and we all want to do better science because in the end that's all that matters. And we want to make sure that the science is impactful, is useful to society. And um, now I can see lots of new initiatives that help to bring more diversity. I mean, there is uh, Polar Impact, for example, which is a great organization in the UK, uh, trying to bring more diversity in the fields of climate research. There is also Girls on Ice, that is trying to bring young girls to glaciers and, and not necessarily to become scientists, uh, but also bring artists. And, and I think, you know, we, we can do so much, uh, but it's very important to support these initiatives today. Yeah, and, and treat me as someone who's totally naive here. So <laughs> it's a very stupid question in a way. What do you mean by climate research? What does that mean? Yeah, I don't think it's a stupid question at all. Um, so what is climate research today? Climate research is, is trying to better understand, first and foremost, how our climate is working. So all the different ingredients you would put into a pot to understand climate. So precipitation, temperature, ocean currents, um, air currents like the polar jet streams, um, how a forest would impact the climate, for example. So to understand how the natural elements are um, working together, are connected, and how when you put you know, human activities into this, how this could also bring new ingredients and affect the climate. And today, to be fair, climate research is a lot about climate change. Um, it's a lot about, okay, we know that human activities emit more and more um, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and this is perturbing a really well-oiled system. Um, and the main goals of climate research today aim at um, trying to have an idea of what could happen to our climate based on different scenarios. So, for example, some of these scenarios would say that human, the human population uh, has decided to reduce its consumption of fossil fuels, so this is the kind of climate we could get in 30 or 50 years. And then on the other end, there are the worst case scenarios that said, no, we will just keep on burning more and more fossil fuels. And this is the kind of climate we can get on Earth. So climate, um, climate research is, is directly connected to our daily lives in a way. I mean, it, it really, really matters today to understand this very complex, very sophisticated system. But we need to improve our understanding of climate in order to adapt and to prepare for the things to come. And I'm conscious of making sure that this doesn't come across as wholly negative because, you know, I'll probably say in the introduction when I record it that you and I spent seven weeks in Greenland together this summer. So I spent a lot of time talking to you, but how is it all looking? You know, what is going to happen? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, yeah, the situation is, is pretty catastrophic. Um, and I think we shouldn't be afraid of saying things as they are. Because I think really people deserve to know exactly what's happening um, in order to inform their own actions and their own decisions. Um, but, you know, I look at the, the climate system through the lens of glaciers. And right now we are losing all these ice masses on Earth. I mean, every time we burn fossil fuels, we contribute to making them melt. 
And the fact that we are losing our glaciers and, and ice sheets is directly impacting our daily lives and, and will definitely impact our future for generations to come. And what's crucial to understand today is that, yes, the situation is extremely bad. There's no doubt about this. But we have a tiny, tiny window of time to avoid losing control, so to avoid these irreversible consequences of climate change. And what I mean by irreversible, for example, I'll give one example, just coming back to Greenland that we know quite well now. Um, but uh, the Greenland ice sheet uh, holds enough ice to increase sea levels globally by uh, six to seven meters. So it's massive. There's a huge amount of, of water stored in the ice there. And um, Greenland is, is a really tall, really high in elevation. You know, it goes over 3,000 meters high. And we know that we could trigger the collapse of the entire ice sheet if we keep burning more fossil fuels and if global temperatures cross a very important threshold of 1.5 degrees. You know, last year at COP, we were always trying to talk about um, keep the, <laughs> the 1.5 degree goal alive. But 1.5 is very important because beyond that, you will start to see a mass of ice like the Greenland Ice Sheet collapse and in an unstoppable way no matter what we do in the future. So even if we manage to, to, I don't know, suck all the CO2 from the atmosphere, bury it in the ground, Greenland will keep on collapsing beyond that. So these, these temperature thresholds are very important because we do not want to cross them. And in order not to cross them, it, it is today that matters. It is today, today, and today. We cannot wait for another 10 or 20 years. And... You know, I want to come back to that specifically and talk about that in depth, actually. But why, just so I understand it, why will the um, ice sheet and the glaciers just keep collapsing? Yeah, so if you, if you want to go into details, which is a very good point, um, it's actually quite simple to understand. So imagine this, this massive cake of ice that is Greenland. It is really high in elevation, you know, 3,000 metres, but... As we are increasing global temperatures, it's starting to melt. So the elevation of the ice becomes less and less. I mean, it's melting. It's like deflating slowly. And as it is losing elevation, suddenly this ice finds itself in much warmer conditions because they're lower down in altitude. It's like when you climb a, you know, a Munro in Scotland or you climb Mont Blanc. You know, it's the difference in altitude completely changes the temperatures around you. And so as Greenland will start losing elevation, eventually it will find itself in a vicious uh, cycle where it's losing altitude because of the warm air. And, and the more it's losing altitude, the more it's melting because it is losing elevation and it's getting into warmer and warmer climates. And so what we should try to avoid, I mean, the tipping point is as soon as it will start losing altitude and, and it will find itself in a place where instead of having snow, it will receive rain instead. Um, and that would be absolutely terrible for Greenland. So it's all about the altitude temperature feedback. And, you know, I've quite deliberately wanted to talk to you about this sort of towards the start or middle of this conversation rather than the end, because I think we do need to talk about solutions, positivity, hope, etc. But we aren't going to stay below that 1.5 degree marker, are we? You know, if we look at where we are today, um, we're running towards 2.5. Um, so we're totally overshooting the climate goals at the moment. If we only take into account the, the strategies that have been put in place today by the governments. And, and this is terrible on so many levels. I mean, we've seen what happened over the last few months, you know, all over the world. Um, and right now we are at 1.1 degrees Celsius of, 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 of um, temperature increase. We've seen wildfires all over the place. We've seen tens of millions of people displaced in Pakistan because of crazy floods. Uh, we've seen places where um, you know, the droughts were, were absolutely incredible all over Africa, for example. And, and this is only at 1.1. And imagine what it, the world could look like at 2.5. Uh, 
um, we would lose control on, on so many different levels. And I think it's very crucial to still keep these 1.5 degrees uh, in mind, to really, really try so very hard to get there. That basically requires every single one of us, our countries, our companies, to divide their emissions by two in the next seven to eight years, right? It's crazy, right? It's extremely ambitious. But I think we should be ambitious. We should be extremely ambitious about the way we tackle the climate crisis. We should be extremely courageous as well. And, and today I can see that, you know, there are so many things that are trying to divide us. Um, you know, the countries are closing their borders and, and everything is put in place to make sure that no collective action takes place. It's so much easier to criticize your neighbor. It's so much easier to say, oh, but look at China. Look at what China is doing. It's so much harder just to look at ourselves and say, okay, you know, these are the tools I have with me. These are my means. This is what I'm going to do. And, um, and what I really want to, to share today is try to empower you know, your listeners to act because this will require every single one of us. And the power of collective action is absolutely insane. And I'm sure you inspire a lot of people to act because you already do a lot through your work. And if you just look at what's happening around you, there's so much we can do just by you know, supporting local organizations, um, by making sure that we vote for the right people and, and, and we also work with the people who are already in place. Make sure that we do not accept things that you know, do not make sense anymore because a lot of our maybe political or economic systems you know, do not understand, are not up to date with the, the crises we're facing. Um, so I think it's very important that we know how to use our voices and nobody's perfect. Let's you know, be very straight about this. No one is perfect. But I'm sure that you know, we all want to be a part of this. And, and it starts by just talking to the right people, trying to influence the right people, vote and, and use your own circle of influence, use the, the people around you to make a change. Yeah. And just to throw something of my own in there, I think, and this is partly coming from my personal experiences, but also from conversations I've had with emails with podcast listeners and friends and people I've met doing things like we did last night on the panel. You know, we kind of live in a purposeless world now where so many people don't feel like they have their tribe and their purpose. And something I'm often saying to people is, well, we've got one over here for you. You know, this is the greatest challenge we will face as humanity in the next hundred years. You know, it's very different to World War II where there were tiger tanks crawling across Europe, but we're, this is a little bit crude, but we're kind of at war. You know, come and join, come and join in because there's a lot to do. But I'm sure, you know, if I was a listener at home listening to this, I'd be shouting at the radio in the car as I was driving along saying, yeah, but what do I do, Heidi? What do I do? It's all hopeless, isn't it? What's, what can I do really? Yeah, this is crucial because I think the, the part where the scientific community can help is first to provide the right information, to make sure that the people who understand the challenge make informed decisions, informed actions. And I mean, I always, I typically say three things. So the first thing is to vote. And, and we often don't see the connection between climate and the people we, we vote for, but the connection is direct. You know, it's, it's definitely there. And if we don't have any elections coming up, make sure that you tell your representatives about what you think. Um, and use the scientists, you know, to strengthen your message because we will definitely be there for you and for that. Um, the second thing I often say is to calculate your carbon footprint. And I know this is a little bit, um, you know, it's a double-edged sword because um, we totally know that the concept of the personal individual carbon footprint was invented by the fossil fuel industries to make sure they would make us feel guilty about the whole thing. But I think it's important to know that, you know, every decisions we make every day can have a positive or a negative impact on the climate. And what I would recommend is when you do that, just to find that one thing that you can do on your, you know, at your level, whether it's the food you eat, the clothes you buy, the transportation techniques, et cetera, et cetera. But just find that one thing because that will get you started on climate action. And, and 
you quickly create a snowball effect when you want to learn more, you want to do more, and it's incredibly empowering. I mean, this is what you were saying, that, you know, I wake up in the morning with such motivation to act, it's incredible. In a way, I mean, no matter what I've just said before and, and the situation we're in, I feel incredibly lucky to have been born, you know, at this time when we're facing the greatest challenges ever. How incredible is that? I mean, we have the power today to create a future that we want. And I know it sounds super cheesy, right? But this is true. We can completely change the system today. And in order to do this, that's my third point, that we need all of us. And it's all about working together. It's not about criticizing the neighbor, the other. Um, it's how do we work with what we have today? with the people we have in place today, with the technologies we have today. Because there's no time to wait. There will not be another technology out of nowhere, you know, fixing this problem. We have to work with what we have. And the only way to do this is to work together. And, I mean, how do you even argue, how do you argue with that? It actually made me a bit emotional. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, that's one of the best ways I've ever heard it explained. And I think, you know, if you're, you're not already on board, if one isn't already on board, then that is about as rousing as it gets. But, you know, something Sophie said on this panel last night that we did at the RGS, um, she answered very quickly, kind of almost a throwaway comment, but it wasn't. It was kind of, I think she either said, hug your kids or raise your kids well. And I think that without getting too cheesy and going down the world, the children are the future route, it is as simple as legacy. You know, looking at one of my personal motivations is I want to be a good ancestor. I want my children and my grandchildren and their grand, uh, their children, you know, to look back at me and say, well, he was really trying, regardless of the world they end up in. Yeah, I fly too much. Yeah, I'm not a vegetarian. I'm working on those things slowly. Um, but just a bit of effort, a bit of trying, and I'm infinitely happier as a result of trying to be better than by rolling over and saying, no, it's, we're all doomed, you know. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I think nobody wakes up in the morning thinking, how can I destroy this planet a little bit more? But we're all fully aware that, you know, as you said, that flying, the food, I'm the same. I mean, I'm far from perfect, but I want to be working with the solutions. I want to be on that side. I want to be remembered, as you said, as someone who tried so very hard and never gave up. And this just gives me endless energy to keep fighting. And to keep fighting in a very positive way, because I know what's there to get, what's there to win. And I know the future can be incredible. And, you know, we are lucky to be among those people who get to see how beautiful nature is. But we're also fully aware of how powerful nature can be when we try to poke it a little bit too much. But I want to make sure that, you know, if I have kids one day, that they will still see some glaciers, right? And to me, this is extremely, extremely important. This is why I wake up with such a rage every morning. And, you know, on the subject of glaciers, I, I've said this to a few people, I've never met somebody who loves ice as much as Heidi. <laughs> but um, what is happening to them and where and what's the state of glaciers and where are we heading with them? Yeah, it's, it's not great. Um, when you look at, you know, just my glaciers, so the glaciers of the Alps, for example, um, we could lose more than 90% of them before the, the end of the century. So in the next 70 to 80 years. And that kills me. I mean, I get very emotional when I think about how different these landscapes will look like. Um, and we need to think about the worth of these glaciers. You know, how much are they worth? You know, this is something that we as scientists need to be so much better at explaining because glaciers are ecosystems that give us a lot of free services. For example, you know, they, they discharge a lot of meltwater during the summer months. It's pretty simple, a glacier in the summer. Yes, it's ice, it melts. And this meltwater can be used for so many things around the world. Um, it could be sanitation, um, agriculture, production of hydroelectricity, industries in general. 
Um, this water can be used to cool down nuclear power plants, could be used, for example, to maintain the levels of rivers uh, all over Europe uh, during the summer months. And, you know, whether you live close to these glaciers or not, you definitely depend upon them. And the most important thing is probably that, the water, the fresh water that they bring. And we know that they are the biggest water towers in the world, that 70% of all the fresh water in the world comes from snow and ice. And just for that very reason, glaciers are extremely important. But they're simple, and the more we increase temperatures, the more they melt. And they also have their own threshold, and the threshold turns out to be very close to 1.5 degrees as well. Um, so, you know, we, we really have to work very, very hard with what we have and, and try to do whatever it takes not to cross this temperature threshold. Because right now we're already not adapted to the changes that are already here. So what is it going to be like in, in 20 or 30 years? So, yeah, I love these glaciers. It's true. <laughs> they're great. But they're totally disappearing right now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And I don't know anything about this work in particular, the stuff I'm about to mention, but you mentioned it to me last night. Um, you're mapping tropical glaciers that are going to disappear. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So... Um... Tropical glaciers, yeah, it sounds like a, how do you call this in English, an oxymoron? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there are still glaciers uh, in the tropics, and you all know, or most of them, I think, but the glaciers of Mount Kilimanjaro, for example, uh, glaciers of Mount Kenya. But there are 3,000 glaciers scattered around uh, the tropics. And the only reason why they're surviving today is because they're high. You know, they're, most of them are above 5,000 meters. Um, but sadly for them, their temperature threshold, you know, their limit is one degree. So they're already beyond what they can tolerate and they're all disappearing right now. Um, and so a few years ago, I started this project called The Last Tropical Glaciers. Um, and we started by looking at the ice in Colombia, <laughs> which is crazy, but I had no idea there were glaciers in Colombia and until I went there. And, um, and it was extraordinary um, to see these tiny patches of ice that are changing so incredibly fast. There is one glaciologist in Colombia, Jorge Luis Ceballos, who is in charge of monitoring all of these glaciers. And he, he is the one who has seen them, you know, totally changing and then disappearing one after the other. These glaciers are also very important for the local indigenous communities. Um, you know, these communities totally get that glaciers are the original of life, you know, that they, they matter so much. But anyways, what, what we try to do through this project today is to make sure that we give a voice to these glaciers and in that when they will be gone, that we will still have the means to remember how important they were, why they were so useful to these ecosystems, to these populations. It's also a way to give a voice to the local scientists who have very little means to study these environments. And, and I think it's so important because we know that if we don't remember what happened in the past, you know, it's bound to happen again and again and again. It's also true for these natural environments, right? If we cannot remember that there were glaciers in Colombia and that they very quickly disappeared, how can we make sure that we will protect the glaciers of the Alps, the glaciers of the Himalayas, the glaciers of the rest of the Andes? And to me, Today, a big part of my job is to communicate the science, but also through emotions, not just through numbers or graphs or tables. I really want to make sure that people can relate, that people can feel what it feels like to be there. 
Because we know what it feels like to be standing next to a big glacier and, and, and to be mesmerized by the power of this nature. But I'm convinced that if we want people to care, we need to make those places accessible. Not necessarily by trying to make them all travel to these tropical glaciers, but find another way. And so we're trying to create these digital archives using you know, all the latest technology, the 360, the VR, and, and find a way to make um, science outreach super cool, you know, irresistible, exciting and sexy. And, and these tropical glaciers are totally insane. So now we're, we're preparing um, two expeditions, one in Papua, where there are two glaciers left. They're very, very small, uh, very close to the Karstens Pyramid. Um, so we're working with the amazing uh, glaciologists from Jakarta who have been so generous with their time and, and uh, fantastic people. And we're, these glaciers will probably be gone in the next few years. So it's really a race against time. Um, and the second expedition we're preparing is in the Rensuri Mountains uh, between Uganda and the DRC. And what's quite poetic about these mountains, the mountains of the moon, is that the glaciers there are the highest and most permanent source of the Nile River. And, um, and it shows that even though they're quite small, these glaciers today, you know, that the drops of water coming from these glaciers are having an impact over hundreds or thousands of kilometers. Um, but sadly, that's it. They will disappear. It's just a kind of question of time. Um, and most of the scientific community has totally abandoned them. But I think, you know, they still have so much to tell us. So this is what we're trying to do. But um, so humor me and bear with me. You know, we know each other fairly well. You know that I'm going to ask all these difficult questions with kindness and I maybe don't really mean them. But does it really matter? Because I found out, I, I didn't know this, and apparently I was the only person in the team who didn't, but I did a shoot in Scotland recently, and I didn't know that Scotland used to have mountains that were taller than Everest, right? And so we're talking geological scale and geological time here. The world changes. It's going to continue to change. Life is finite. Are we in the seventh mass extinction? Is that seventh, sixth, seventh? I, I think it's sixth now. Sixth, yeah. sixth yeah. mass extinction. Yeah. Things are going to change. And... How do we feel ethically, this is maybe quite a big question, about trying to preserve things which are going to inevitably disappear anyway? Is that not in some kind of way wrong? Because it's not just humans that are causing climate change, mm. is it? Well, that's a very good point, actually, because when you look at these tropical glaciers, they are inherited from the last ice age. So, of course, obviously, naturally, these glaciers were born to disappear. But what's happening right now is that we are really dramatically speeding up the process. And your question is, is so very important because climate has always been changing. Um, before going into glaciology, I studied geology. So I'm fully aware of these, you know, really large uh, timescales. And the fact that, yeah, of course, you know, Svalbard, for example, where I spend a lot of my time, which is this, this archipelago between northern Norway and the North Pole, today... Uh, used to be below the equator, you know, tens of millions of years ago, right? So things constantly changed. Yes, there used to be forests on Svalbard. Now there's just ice and rocks. So things always change. But I think why I care so much about these glaciers, for example, is that they know, I know the value that they have. I know their worth. I know the impact they're having today on local populations, on their agriculture, on their economies. And I know that we're not ready at all for what's yet to come. Um, for example, you know, a country like Bolivia that has tropical glaciers, they're not ready for the fact that most of them are going to disappear probably by the end of the century. So my goal is to make sure that we understand the timescales of these changes and how these changes are impacting people people, people, human beings. This is why I care so much. But of course, you know, we often say that, that the planet will be fine. What, why climate change matters so much today is because we're on this planet and because we're going to suffer the consequences of our actions. Yeah. I mean, I said it to you when we were out in the bar just before we sat down here, but there's, I've remembered his name now, but Peter Taylor, the environmentalist who's kind of a shaman wizard, saying that um, 
it's not about whether or not humans survive. Like our survival is sort of inevitable. He doesn't say all this, I'm adding and paraphrasing and doing a bad job of it, but you know, there'll be an elite group of humans who will always be fine. As a species, we're going to be okay. Um, it's whether or not we want to live in a world that's just inhabited by dogs and cats. Because, you know, your human point is extremely valid. Of course it matters, you know, what happens to particularly people in countries who haven't had a profound impact on what it is that's happening now. You know, it's totally. my country, your country and above. Um, but it's also about the fragile ecosystems and the biodiversity, surely. You know, that's what we're losing at a rapid pace. And that is our fault in many ways. Yeah, totally. And as you said, it's the most vulnerable people who have had the least to do in, you know, the carbon footprint, in their, their impact on the planet, who will suffer the most? And that is, I mean, who, who likes that? I mean, who, who can accept that? I definitely cannot accept this. And it's for these people that we go to those places that we try to use all the tools we have, these digital archives, to make sure that we can help our governments, help our private sectors to understand the value of those things. The value, the fact that, once a glacier is gone, it is gone. You know, it will not regrow like this. We cannot do that today. Nature is so fascinating, so incredibly complex. It doesn't need us for anything. We desperately need nature. And let's not forget this. Yeah. Oh, there's so much I want to ask. <laughs> um, where shall we go next on our little journey? <laughs> I kind of want to go to Svalbard, but no. Before we do, oh, no. before Take we me do, to Svalbard. <laughs> <laughs> before we do, how do you think that the scientific community at large are doing at communicating these messages? No, but you know, this is a topic that is very, very dear to me, and that I keep complaining about this because I know, you know, I often say that to my students that with great power comes great responsibility, and they love this because it's that quote from Spider-Man, maybe. Um, but we have we have the power of knowledge. We know we know what's happening, or at least we think we know. Um, and it should be our duty to make sure that this science is accessible to everyone. Um, the way. As a scientist, if you want to have a career, the way you're told to communicate is to communicate to your peers. So writing reports, publishing journals, um, articles in journals, scientific journals. And the impact of this is very limited because it stays within the scientific community. This is great to make you know, science advance. It's very important. But right now, I think we're in a situation when it's perhaps in a way equally important or perhaps even more important to make sure that that science is accessible to the decision makers, to the private sector, to the general public, to the youth. Because we're in a situation of total urgency and what we need is to make these informed decisions, informed actions based hopefully on science. And I'm, I see this all the time. I see this when I give talks that when people start to understand exactly what's happening and how this is going to impact their daily lives, then they want to act. I mean, the first thing they ask me is, what can I do? What can I do about this? But right now what is happening is that we are imposing new rules, new regulations without explaining why, and some of them are not informed by science at all. So I think we have such a crucial role to play, and we're definitely not there yet. Um, we're still publishing reports that we think and we hope, we're really praying that they're going to be read by everyone and they're not. What we need, and that's what we were talking about yesterday, is to have a much more proactive way to communicate on these topics. And we need to use all the tools available. It's not just science, it's not just numbers, it's also observations. You know, people like you and, and Leo, who spend so much time in the field, who see those changes, this is extremely valuable because of the following you have and because you will speak with your heart, with your experience. And some people might trust this a lot more than the work of scientists, you know, and I totally accept this. I totally understand. Um, we, use, we need to use art. We need to use emotions. We need to use... Some people yesterday even mentioned humour. 
And I think this is where we need to go. We need to be a lot more creative uh, in the way we communicate the science. And we need to, I mean, this topic should dominate the media. I'm sick and tired of hearing people saying, oh, there is so much climate fatigue today. Please, if you're tired of hearing about climate change today, just wait another few years and see what is going to happen. Do not be tired about this topic today because, I mean, your future is at play and you can be a part of this. You can make a difference. Um, so to come back to our role, we need to be so much better. I can see that the, the younger generation of scientists totally understands their role and their, their responsibilities. But we're not trained to do this. Um, and so for us, it's taking us so far out of our comfort zone. But we need to understand that the challenge is so very important that this is what we need to do. We need to make science more accessible, more understandable. Yeah, brilliant. Let's make some movies. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> more, more, more. Absolutely. <laughs> so tell me about Svalbard. But... Um, <laughs> So I've been to Svalbard three times and I'm lucky I've traveled to a lot of places and Svalbard is not my favorite place. Oh, I just remember it as this that. like dark, dreary island covered in snow with little mountains and the like old derelict mines. <laughs> so <laughs> this is so true. <laughs> so change my mind, help me fall in love with Svalbard. Why is it your favorite place? I mean, Svalbard is definitely my favorite place. First of all, because 60% of the land is ice and it doesn't take much <laughs> for me to like a place. If there is ice, there's a good chance I will really like it. And I think I spent most of my formative years in Svalbard, so this probably influences my judgments. Um, but um, I did my PhD there, I did that exchange semester there. And it's a place that I've been traveling to since 2008, you know, multiple times every year. I lived there full time for four years for my PhD and I got to know it like the back of my hand. And I think the reason why I love it so much is two things. The incredible beauty of this place, especially, you know, at times when there is no daylight for three months or times when you have that midnight sun during the summer months and just the light is something so special in the polar regions. Um, the fact that the glaciers are incredibly accessible. It is so easy to travel to Svalbard. It's just a direct flight from Oslo now. It takes, what, three hours. And the first glacier you'll see is two kilometers away from town. <laughs> so this is great. And for us, it makes it a fantastic lab to study climate. And that's my second point, is that climate change is impacting Svalbard terribly. And today Svalbard has become the fastest warming place on Earth. It's warming six to seven times faster than the rest of the world. When we look at what Svalbard could look like by the end of the century, it would be a temperature increase of annually of about 10 degrees. And this, to me, gives a completely new dimension to my work in Svalbard, and I'm still very um, connected to the place. Um, but it's, it is the epicenter for climate change. It is a place that we should use to communicate about these issues, a place where we should continue to collect data. And it is so incredibly meaningful. So I think, you know, Svalbard is a very meaningful place for me today. Yeah, okay. I take that. That works. <laughs> well, I think, you know, we're sort of we're sort of getting towards the end of our conversation, and everybody loves fluffy things. So <laughs> let's talk about bears. I mean, who doesn't like polar bears? Is it is yeah. it true that Svalbard has three polar bears to every person, or is that a myth? No, I mean it's it's sort of true. If it's not just Svalbard, it's also um, the region of the Arctic Ocean around Svalbard. Um, so yes, that's what we tend to know, that there are more bears than inhabitants in Svalbard. And, uh, and I mean, there are polar bears visiting the town, you know, all the time and not all the time, but every now and then you can see them from town. And, and to me, you know, seeing a polar bear is always a little bit of a miracle. Um, you get to see, you know, the, the perfect animal that is so adapted to the worst conditions you can ever imagine. It's like a 
perfect machine in a way. He's the smartest animal that you can see. I mean, you can see it in their eyes that they totally understand what you're trying to do and whether or not you're bothering them. Um, but of course, when you do field work in Svalbard, it makes it very tricky because you kind of don't want to see them. You don't want to disturb them. And I think it's very important to remind ourselves that, you know, we are in their territory. <laughs> and just now, in mean, just a few weeks ago, I'm going to share something that is quite distressing, I think. But there was this mom polar bear. She's a super mom. She has raised the cubs that survive. She's training them to adapt to these really rapidly changing conditions. And she has been filmed by every production traveling to Svalbard, Frost. That's her name. Her real name is Misha. And Misha is very smart, you know. And if I were her, I would do the same. She's been visiting every single cabin she could find on Svalbard to try to find some food. Fair enough. It was, if I was a bear, I would probably do that as well. Free food. Um, but of course, this is not great for the locals. Luckily, no one was hurt. It's just, you know, infrastructures, windows broken or stuff like that. And... Um, the mayor of Longebien, of the town, the main town in Svalbard, um, suggested that perhaps she should be shot and all her cubs as well, because they know, now they know there is food in those cabins. And I mean, it is crazy. It makes my, my blood boil. How dare we to say this? We are the ones, you know, invading her own environment. And what right do we have to shoot her? So luckily, um, polar bears are fully protected on Svalbard. The governor of Svalbard said that absolutely not. I mean, there's no way this bear and her uh, cubs will be shot. There was even a petition about this, and 100,000 people signed the petition. So this shows how much people care about those fluffy things. But of course, those fluffy things, you know, are the symbol of climate change as well. And... Ursus maritimus, so the polar bear, is a marine animal and, and relies on sea ice to hunt, to reproduce. Um, they eat seals and the seals, uh, seal pups are born on the sea ice. Um, and sea ice is disappearing all around the Arctic. I mean, we are totally losing our sea ice at the moment. Um, so what will happen to the polar bears is a very good question. And I absolutely don't have the answer. But what we're starting to see on Svalbard is Bears are very clever and bears that are completely changing their hunting techniques, hunting what they eat to adapt to these changes. So we've seen very young bears starting to attack the reindeers of Svalbard. And I think the reindeers absolutely didn't see it coming. <laughs> you know, they were kind of living together, tolerating one another, but um, now the, some reindeers are being like decimated by a couple of bears. We've seen polar bears also um, eating the eggs of migrating birds, so they're again decimating entire colonies of birds in the summer months. But the very best food for the bears will remain the seals because of how much fat they have. And more often than not, they only eat the fat and not even the meat, not even the muscle. So it's not enough to hunt reindeers. It's not enough to eat eggs. Um, right now, they are surviving. They seem to be okay with the conditions we have today. But the question is, what will happen to the bears in 10 years or 20 years when there will be perhaps no sea ice left over big portions of the Arctic? So time will tell. Um, but of course, you know, it's incredibly sad to think about this. And we all want our kids to see polar bears when they grow up, right? Um, this is also what we're fighting for. It's not just our water resources. It's also these mesmerizing creatures. But I'd imagine we're also going to see a, a huge increase in kind of human-wildlife conflict as, yeah. you know, I'm mm -hmm. sure, again, this is an obvious thing to say for everyone listening, but the Arctic isn't made of land, it's made of sea. And so the bears all have to move south, I assume. And where do they go? Well, they head towards human population because we're all parked on the land. So, you know, it's, I guess it's going to be a complicated 10 or 20 years working out how we deal with these human wildlife conflicts. Um, because the mayor has, I'm going to say the mayor's got a point, don't jump over the table and kill me. <laughs> we should not shoot that bear, but we're going to have to work out how to live in harmony. Yeah, totally. And, and I totally see his point as well. I mean, he's there to protect his population, right? That is his main mission. 
And I completely understand that. And luckily, there are lots of solutions to avoid this, to make sure the bear would understand that you're not welcome here. Please stop <laughs> breaking these windows, getting into these cabins. But, you know, not only the animals will have to move, but there is a lot of interest in the Arctic itself as a place full of resources, as a place with a lot of space, which is also a resource. So as human beings are moving more and more into the Arctic countries, into the Arctic regions, as the fauna and flora is totally migrating all over the Arctic, of course, the transition will be full of conflict. Mm. Yeah, and I don't want to do him a disservice, but I'm going to ask Adam, who was with us in Greenland. I have asked Adam, who was with us in Greenland, to come on the podcast, and he said yes. And I'll definitely oh, ask great. him about this, but I think he said it to me, but I might have heard it third hand. He said well, we didn't really cause the problem. And actually what we're going to get is a more temperate Greenland where we can grow some food. Absolutely. And life's going to be less hard. Like he said, I'm not saying I want the world to struggle and suffer, but I am saying that we're going to be okay as, you know, Greenlandic people. And that's kind of a hard thing to hear actually. Like, yes, the world is going to get a lot worse for a lot of people, but for some people there surely is going to be a migration north and south, depending on where you're from, because there's lots of land there. Totally. And it's not absolutely not up to us to tell them what to do. And it's so great to see what's happening in Greenland, the fact that, you know, they have a fantastic government who has really a long-term vision. This is what I'm seeing from my own point of view, but has a long-term vision about, you know, their country and, and what they want future generations to inherit um, and, and, you know, it's never all black or all white. Um, just like the solutions against climate change will never be one or the other. They will have to be very local. And it's all about respecting, you know, respecting the decisions they make in these different countries. Yeah. I feel like we could do another hour. Maybe we will another day <laughs> after you've done the tropical glaciers. That'd be great. Absolutely. Um, what are you doing next outside of that? What's No, I'm going to change my question. You know, you speak so eloquently and passionately about your passion and career and the role, you know, your purpose is so abundantly clear. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? <laughs> Such a good question. Well, I will, I will continue doing this. I think no matter what will happen in the years to come, we will always need to better understand the environments around us will always need scientists to study these environments. And we will always need people who try to be yeah, a conduit uh, between the scientific community and the governments and the general public. And I see that this is my role. My role is yeah, to share my passion and to make sure that people understand how valuable nature really is. Amazing. So I always end, I don't know if you know this, I always end my podcasts by asking um, the person I'm speaking to, the same two questions. <gasps> okay. The first one is, what scares you? What scares me, um, it would be cliche to say um, climate inaction, but what scares me is how, I don't know if it scares me, but to see that some people are causing tremendous harm to nature. And what scares me is how can, can they not get it? You know, how, how can they wake up in the morning, look at themselves in the mirror and think this is okay? So how can we work with these people? And it scares me that for some people, it might be okay what they do. Yeah. That is really scary. Yeah. Hey, but good news in Brazil. Oh, yes, I know. I know, I got so excited. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is, there is hope, you see? There is hope. Yeah. Um, what brings you hope? <laughs> well, that was a great news for sure in Brazil. But what brings me hope is to see how quickly things are changing, actually in a good way. Um, I mean, just to give you a very simple example, um, maybe five or six years ago, our president in France, Macron, when we were talking about uh, sufficiency, which is just using what you need, he referred to sufficiency as someone that um, Hamish, Hamish, Hamish people would do. You know, people who are like so disconnected to the real world today, according to him. So he tried to make people who cared about how much energy they were using, tried to make them look bad. 
a few years later, the situation is very different in France. We're struggling with our energy sources. Uh, we know that the, the coming winter will be very difficult. How are we going to keep the lights on? How are we going to keep the heating on? It's going to cost a lot of money. And now, guess what? Sufficiency is all the rage <laughs> in the French government. And just that, it is super simple, right? But the fact that they have accepted this and to see that these people who were laughing at the face of the Green Party, of ecologists, of scientists, let's be honest, are now understanding, you know, we're getting there, but starting to understand the scale of the problem and the fact that the solutions are already right here. Um, so this is giving me a lot of hope. And, and to see that, you know, there are these nuggets of good news all over the place. But what's very important is that we need to celebrate this. We need to tell the success stories. This is your job also, Matt, <laughs> to make sure that these success stories, you know, are, are shared, that people are inspired by this is so very important. So, yeah, I will not let you go. I will make sure I follow up with you on that because we, we need to hear about this because hope is the only reason why we will fight for a better future. So we need to keep giving hope and we need, to, we, need, we need to be convinced that the future can be better. So hope is the key in everything we talked about today. Hope is the way. And if someone as clever and experienced as you can read the news and have hope, then I don't see why I can't. So there we go. And yeah, I promise I'll try and do my bit. <laughs> Good. Um, thank you. That was amazing. Thank you so much, Matt. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is a Cold House production and is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Alex Hall and Orla Omori. You can get in touch at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk or follow along on Instagram at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.